challenges to your viewpoint. Some of us welcome that. You know, we, we think, oh, here's an opportunity to learn something, to be sort of challenged in my way of thinking and, and come away with new understanding. I'd imagine more of us respond by finding ourselves wanting to retrench into our viewpoint, right? Dig our heels in and get, you know, ready to come out swinging, get ready for the fight. How do you respond when your views and your beliefs are challenged? This morning, if you're just joining us, we're a few weeks into a series that we're doing walking through St. Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, the early church. And we've seen already in it over the last several weeks how God is committed to a long game, a long-range plan for the redemption of all things through Jesus Christ as his body on earth, the church, is commissioned to carry his gospel presence, as the very presence of the risen Christ, carry his gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas. This week we encounter the spread of the gospel into one such gospel-deficient area, Gentile-Roman lands. Last week we saw how Oftentimes uh, in the scriptures, because of, let's face it, the racism of the church, uh, Cornelius is pointed to as the first Gentile believer. He's not. The first one was an Ethiopian. We saw that back in chapter 8 last week. But he is the first Gentile Roman to receive the gospel. And that's no small thing either. So let's see specifically, though, through Acts chapter 10, the way that this passage is designed to challenge, because it challenges Peter's point of view. It challenges Peter's beliefs on several levels. He's challenged in his culturally formed perceptions about Romans, about this Roman centurion. He's challenged in his, his previous religious convictions about adherence to Old Testament food laws. He's challenged in his understanding of the plan of God in Christ Jesus. He's even challenged in his understanding of the gift of God's Holy Spirit at the very end. So let's walk with Peter through this passage. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Acts chapter 10. And let's be challenged along with him. Right off the bat, as I say, this passage sets us up to see a challenge to culturally formed perceptions. Read with me in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea... That's the first point. But at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known, oh, sorry, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. First off, the stage is set just at the mention of Caesarea. See, Herod the Great so-called, had actually built the city of Caesarea as a port to show uh, the Roman powers that be that he was just the kind of puppet dictator that they needed, right? And so, of course, as any good schmooze would, he named it after Caesar, thus Caesarea. His full name is actually Caesarea Maritima, basically Caesar on the waters, right? Caesar on the sea. Sounds like a good salad. Anyway, <laughs> it was a decidedly Roman city, though. 
The type that not a, a, a really devout Jew, certainly a Pharisee, for instance, wouldn't even want to enter that city, wouldn't even go there. Which is actually probably why we read that Peter, who does want to be near the sea for whatever reason, this is where the Lord sent him, is in Joppa, which is about 30 miles away, a Jewish city, to accomplish a lot of the same things that Caesarea was meant to accomplish, but for devout Jews to not have to associate. But of course... As we read about Cornelius himself, things then don't get much better because he's a Roman centurion, which is to say he's an officer in the very army that has occupied, has brutally treated, has marginalized and exploited the Jewish people. So not only would no pious Jew want to even go near him in Caesarea, they wouldn't want to associate with him and actually, given the power disparities of the time, probably wouldn't even have an opportunity to associate with him. That's Cornelius in Caesarea. Yet here in this most unlikely of places with this most unlikely person, we read this challenge to our expectations about the plan of God in Christ. We read that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God. Now that says a lot about a guy whose livelihood actually necessitated that he had made certain vows in obedience to the emperor, had even made certain religious sacrifices to the gods and to the emperors to even hold his job, his position. And yet, presumably, from the influence of his time among the Jews, he had come to believe in the one true God. What's more, he doesn't just believe. He was devout. The word in Greek actually means pious or even godly. He was a godly man. His lifestyle reflected the glory of God. Say, what now? We still talking about a Roman centurion? Because that does not make sense. How can a man who was born in the heart of Rome, who pledged his allegiance to the emperor, who has given his life in serving in the army that has uh, oppressed and subjugated the people of Palestine, reflect the character and glory of God? And yet he does. In fact, look at the words that the angel who visits him says. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, not to be confusing, a tanner whose house is by the sea. God, in fact, sees this man's lifestyle of prayer, of care for the poor, and he finds his life a pleasing aroma. Friends, that is a challenging thought. It's a challenge even to us, contemporary Jesus followers, because what we need to understand is that believers do not have the corner on the market. Believers do not have the corner on the market in doing good or pursuing truth and what is right. It's plain as day from the story. Cornelius was not a member of God's chosen people, but God found his seeking his devotion and his charity a pleasing 
an acceptable sacrifice. What do we do with that, people of God? In his book, The Provocative Church, which we're looking at together during the formation hour, Graham Tomlin makes the point that the church does not equal the kingdom. The church is not equal to the kingdom of God. In fact, he begins by saying, Jesus came announcing a kingdom and he ended up with the church. I think he may have gotten a raw deal. But his point is that Jesus was all about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the church has taken over that mission in his bodily absence. But while the church is a proclaimer of, a, a signpost pointing toward, and even sort of an expatriate community of the kingdom, we are not the kingdom in its totality. The kingdom of God is much bigger than just little old us. And the Lord is at work drawing people into his kingdom, even outside the confines of our four walls. Now, we'll see by the end of the chapter that incorporation into the church is the normative outcome for these outliers being drawn in. But God's grace is far larger than we can ever expect or imagine. And therefore, those of us inside the church can never put ourselves in the position of being gatekeepers or sole proprietary owners of the grace of God. There are people outside the walls of the church who are actually advancing the values of the kingdom. They may not know the king. They don't even recognize or realize they're doing it but they are advancing the values of the kingdom of God. In our earliest years as a church plant, we had the opportunity to partner with one of the local business owners, kooky little sort of nature crystal shop up in Old Town. But we had the opportunity to partner with him because I was getting to know the manager there in a, uh, a coat and blanket and money drive for earthquake victims in Nepal. And I remember the passion and the care and the compassion that that young man exhibited. It had a huge impact on me. And I remember saying to him, actually, at one point, saying to him one day, you know, I feel like if Jesus were here, he'd probably say to you, you are not far from the kingdom, as Jesus said to one young man in the Gospels. Just as Cornelius did not know the fullness of God's plan in Christ, nor could he even participate in what he did know of God's plan because he wasn't a Jew and because he was a Roman centurion. He couldn't participate in the religious life of Israel even. There are men and women similarly in our communities, perhaps even in our lives, who walk a similar course. They're not far from the kingdom. They're doing the best they can with what they know and I'm sure that in some of those cases, God is pleased with their seeking hearts and their compassionate generosity. What do we do with that challenge? We pray. We pray for the eyes to see what God is doing and to encourage and invite and join him in it. And that's what we'll see. St. Luke is a great storyteller. Just like in a, in a contemporary movie, we see the scene in Cornelius' house sort of you know, fade to black and the lights come up 
on Peter, right? Peter, sitting on a rooftop one day, challenged in his religious convictions about clean and unclean. Again, the text says, the next day, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being laid down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Here's Peter. Even though he'd followed Jesus for three years and became one of the chief preachers of God's new kingdom work and plan, he still remained a devout Jewish adherent to the Mosaic law about what was clean, what could and what could not be eaten. No pork, no shellfish, no reptiles. No argument for me on that one. (laughs) And here's poor Peter, hungry enough to eat his shirt, And the Lord shows him all of these delectable foods. Ham, bacon, right? Lobster. Peter says, Lord, what are you saying? I've never broken your kosher laws and I don't intend to start now. And God says, this thing that was intended to declare my set-apartness, my holiness, it's become a broken image. You've missed the point. It's not about rejecting others and and, and keeping yourself somehow unstained by them. That's not what's important. This is not what I intended. Stop calling what I have created for my glory unclean. But that's not where it ends. That's just the beginning. Peter has no real clear idea yet about what this means. Eat bacon? I lived my whole life without bacon. Why would I start now? Why are you telling me that I can eat whatever I want? And so the story advances. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, he's still perplexed. He's still not fully sure what this all means. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And so Peter begins to understand. Maybe that wasn't all about shrimp scampi. He receives Cornelius' emissaries, houses them for an evening, which is a sure sign that he's beginning to figure out what's going on here, because we were told at least one of them is actually a Roman soldier, right? Right? And the next day, Peter goes with them and makes that 30 or so mile trip up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea, that city he would never, ever have considered entering before that day. Cornelius, who knows the area and understands travel times and whatnot better than most, probably, knows when to expect Peter and the others, and so he actually calls a huge group of people together, his entire extended family, probably some others he thinks might be interested in hearing what Peter has to say. And so we read on. So Peter, addressing them, opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand. See, he's finally getting it. Ah, 
This is what the vision was about. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. Again, now the vision becomes clear. It wasn't about food at all. It was about Peter's ingrained beliefs from his Jewish upbringing to label some people as clean and acceptable to God and others as unclean. Now I get it. God doesn't distinguish that way between clean and unclean. As Peter will write to the churches decades after this encounter in in 2 Peter, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient, and he wants all men and women to find repentance from their former ways of life and redemption through Christ Jesus because he is Lord of all. There is a kingdom. Some people reflect its values, but eventually they have to be introduced to the king if they want to fully participate. While this whole interaction has dramatically challenged some of Peter's preconceived religious ideas about who is acceptable to God, he is still crystal clear on this one point. The plan of God still centers on Jesus. God did speak to me and send me here for a reason, and it's to tell you about Jesus. God has looked with favor on you, but he's done so in order to include you, to bring you in, to draw you close, to bring you into his plan, which is understood and participated in through Jesus. And so just to confirm the point, we read this. While Peter was still saying these things, he hadn't even finished. He hadn't even given his conclusion yet. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, just like the apostles had done on the day of Pentecost, right? They were experiencing Pentecost all over again, but it's Gentiles this time. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The Spirit moves to confirm the witness of Peter's words. Yes, you got it. I am including these people in my kingdom, in my plan. I am Lord of all, them too. That's the message. And so Peter says, well, the Lord's made very clear that we are to go forth and we're to proclaim his name, we're to make disciples, teach them to obey, and to baptize them. So I'm not standing in the way of that. Get some water, right? 
How can anyone withhold that signing and sealing of the grace of God through the sacramental act? They've received the gift of the promised Holy Spirit, which accompanies water baptism already. We're, we're like, we're behind the times here, people. We're, we're behind, you know, we've got the cart behind, or the horse behind the cart. Let's make it official. And now the first Roman Gentiles are brought fully into the family of faith. Friends, baptism and inclusion in the body of Christ, the church, is the normative place for all devout seekers of God. That's why we are bringing two children to the waters this morning. Because even now, in infancy, their parents and we, their, their parish community, we want to mark them as God's own children and begin declaring to them even now, this is how you walk in the family of faith. We want to begin forming them even now to understand that this family is the normative place for them to walk out life seeking God. But what this story challenges us with at every turn, just as it did with Peter, just as we saw last week when we talked about the first Gentile convert, an Ethiopian court official, at every turn, we are challenged to remember that we do not hold sole proprietary ownership over the work of God. God is at work already in the lives of men and women all over our community, all over our world. Our job as church is not to decide who then is in and who is out. It is to try, it's not to try and set limiting boundaries over the grace of God. It is to recognize what God is doing, to call it out when we see it, to celebrate it in others, even if we're unsure of where they stand, and then point them to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of what we see happening in them. Point them to Jesus and then invite them to follow, to receive the sacrament of new birth and walk with us in newness of life. That was the challenge this encounter posed to Peter. It's the same challenge that God poses to his church today. Lay aside preconceived notions, prejudices, and pride. Open your eyes to what God is doing. And seek to join him in it as he takes his gospel presence into gospel deficient areas. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do pray that you will open the eyes of faith within us. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who need the eyes of their heart opened to that seminal credo that you are Lord of all. We need to recognize, oh, that means you must be Lord of me. Lord Spirit, do your work of inviting them to walk with us. For any of us who need the eyes of our hearts open to see that you are at work, perhaps even in some of the most unexpected places where we weren't even looking for you. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts 
to receive and accept what you are doing. That we would not be resistant, that we wouldn't be those who retrench into our previous point of view, but that we would be eager to join you in it. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, open our eyes of faith. Open us to the work that you are doing, our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.